Welcome to Tech Transforms, sponsored by Dynatrace. I'm Carolyn Ford. Each week, Mark Snell and I talk with top influencers to explore how the U.S. government is harnessing the power of technology to solve complex challenges and improve our lives. Hi, thanks for joining us on Tech Transforms. I'm Carolyn Ford, here with my co-host, Mark Snell. Hey, Mark. Hey, Carolyn. Good morning. Good morning. So today we are joined by Dr. Amy Hamilton. She is the visiting faculty chair for the Department of Energy at National Defense University and senior cybersecurity advisor for policy and programs at the U.S. Department of Energy. And Amy's career is impressive. She has had previous stops at the OMB, Executive Office of the President, the Michigan Army National Guard, where she was commissioned into the U.S. Army Signal Corps and served on active duty, and then later the U.S. Army Reserve. So thank you, Amy. My dad, also Army, so best branch. (laughs) (laughs) And Amy has worked at both the U.S. European Command and NORAD, She's a certified project manager and a prolific public speaker. She's even given a TED Talk, and she's a rock star among us. We are thrilled to have Amy on today to discuss educating agency workforces through automation and the the importance of preparing the next generation. So with that, welcome to Tech Transforms, Amy. Thank you so much for having me. It sounds like- Amy. Yeah, yeah my like dog's you have barking. another guest that wants to say hi. <laughs> Come here, buddy. <laughs> Come here. Do you want to be on TV? <laughs> oh, what's oh, the name? That's cute. Sugar. <laughs> Is Sugar a boy or a girl? Or he's non-binary? a boy, but he's very comfortable. <laughs> okay. okay. Excellent. Excellent. All right. Well, let's just jump right in. Um, you you might have heard our episode with. Ann Duncan, CIO at Department of Energy. Uh, she was, it was such a fun conversation. She was great. And Ann um, made us aware that the DOE has a broad and nuanced portfolio of operations and missions, including nuclear, environmental. Um, sorry, that's my cat saying hello. <laughs> <laughs> so, so nuclear, environmental management, and open science technology, and more. So as automation and AI grow, what ways is the DOE implementing these new technologies into training and beyond? And are there specific use cases where you're excited to roll out AI versus instances where you're like, "Eh, maybe not? So I think it's really important, and you you hit the key point of like training and education. Uh, that's why Anne and Anne is like so terrific, and it's great that you guys interviewed her. You know, let me come over here to the National Defense University. So I am partly doing some research still for DOE specifically in operational technology, which I think automation and AI is going to be a huge part of. And addition to that is like how do we educate our workforce, and how do we make sure that the workforce is not terrified of AI. And one of the things that we did recently recently at the National Defense University is we had our annual Cyber Beacon Conference. And it was super interesting. And the proceedings should be out about now-ish. And what we did is we looked at every single panel and we had an AI-generated abstract and we had an abstract that a human wrote. And we had the audience guess which one was generated by a human, which one was generated by AI. 
for almost for five of the seven, it was almost exactly 50-50. People did not know the difference between AI generated or human generated content for these abstracts. So they were abstracts for like um, speaking, like presentation. For a panel. So like if you did, um, for instance, right here, like your podcast, if you did an AI generated podcast description, and then you did a human generated podcast description, and then for all of them start asking people like, which one's human, which one's um, AI. Yeah. And for for uh, five of the seven, it was almost exactly 50-50. Well, I mean, and- the truth is, isn't all that based <laughs> on human stuff? Like, right? Isn't that where the AI gets the, the large language model is from data from us, right? Right. And so a lot of times, though, people are questioning, like, is the AI content as informative, as valuable? So to actually be able to just kind of like lightly start testing that. Yeah. So, you know, if you're out there and you're wondering, can can human and AI, can it be interchanged? You know, at least at a kind of wave top abstract level, you know, it appears to be pretty good, right? You know, our, and that's a super interesting thing. And the other thing is allowing people a safe environment to test out AI. So when you're at a university environment, uh, we specifically use .edu networks to make sure that this is a a learning environment. You know, we're not on the main government um, systems. And we had an AI-generated poster contest. And for many of our students, it was the first time that they ever, like, went out and tried generative AI, especially for images. Oh, images. So what tools did they use for the images? They use different tools. Uh, Dolly was a popular tool that they used. Um, there was a couple other ones that were freeware that I cannot think of off the top of yeah. my head. But if you just, you know, use your favorite search engine and put in, you know, generative AI image creators, uh, some are for pay. Some of them are, you know, you have to remember that uh, if you're not paying anything, you are probably the product, right? So, you know, mm-hmm. they're, they're gathering mm-hmm. your information. So you have to be like, are you comfortable with this? And, you know, yeah. some people are comfortable giving out their information. Some people are not. But and that's why we want it to be on a .edu network where people are more comfortable. But, uh, you know, they just use some different keywords. Uh, we had some really just neat posters that were generated. And more importantly, the students had that learning environment where they're, they're out there using AI in an environment where they do feel safe. And I think that one of the super interesting things is just recently the administration you know, release their um, executive order on artificial intelligence. And I think that that's going to have some great, um, you know, guide rails for us as we move forward. What do you think of that, EO? I think it's difficult when you're the first time, right? Yeah. So I would not have wanted to be at OMB writing that right now because, (laughs) uh, you know, if you look at cybersecurity even, which I've been doing forever, uh, cybersecurity, when it comes to federal code, goes underneath building the building codes. Because when IT first came out, it was seen as sort of like the same as electricity or something else. And I don't think now we would think of what we do as should, being under building codes, right? Like, should that really be where it lives? But that's where it got put, so that's where it is now. And I think if you look at AI, we're probably going to eventually look at this executive order and say, like, oh, we had a lot to learn. But I think that's going to be the historic behind the, like looking backwards. I think that it's an extraordinarily difficult job that they have at OMB right now. Well, and, it's huge. You know, unprecedented too. technological advances. You yeah. know, what I thought was interesting in that was that one of the key points was encouraging agencies to you to deploy and to uh, experiment with AI. 
Well, in certain areas, like um, we just talked about the abstracts, the amount of time that you can save using AI when it comes to things like, uh, you know, a great example uh, that I heard at a workforce was, you know, hey, if you're writing your your PD, PDs a lot of times are the same, like use AI to help to generate some of these things. Um, Use AI, like I said, uh, when we went to the chancellor and said, hey, we'd like to use AI to generate the abstracts. You know, somewhat reluctance, even in a university environment. But like when you see, hey, it's almost 50-50, next time, why not just go with AI-generated abstracts and be honest and tell people, hey, we're using AI-generated abstracts. And I think people are going to find it exciting, useful tools. The question is, is, you know, what does that mean in the long term? And, you know, how do we use AI in a way that goes from, you know, low value to high value work? If I'm not doing abstract, what other things could I be doing and spending my brain calories towards? Because you know, a lot of times that writing can just be very tedious and time consuming. So you're not really, you're not, um, you're not really like a research area for stuff like this. Um, it's more of the educational arm. Because I was thinking, man, this would be, a, you guys would be a great hotbed to, to test out a lot of this, these new things where you're at. Uh, there are other areas that we work with to do that. And some of our yeah. professors uh, really specialize in that sort of like a uh, machine learning, yeah. large language um, area. Uh, we, we have faculty that have all kinds of different levels of expertise and they'll partner and work with different uh, DOD, DOE and, and other programs. Okay. Interesting. But the national laboratories, I mean, they're, you know, I'm sure you heard all about that from Anne, you know, that they're doing quite a bit of extensive research into these areas. Yeah. So in, in an in an environment that is not very uh, risk tolerant. Right. Um, it depends on the environment. So, uh, you know, if you're at a nuclear facility, like, don't be innovative. Like, don't like just be very boring people. Right. Like, that's <laughs> what you want in an environment. And. You know, I love the people who who are they are that regimented attention to detail routine like that's what you want in those like no risk environments. You know, you want to make sure at a nuclear facility, you know, uh, the people who are um, providing our electricity on our electric grids, those are the environments where it's very low tolerance to no tolerance. Uh, but on the other hand, we have open science labs. Um and the open science labs are designed to be creative, to really start, you know, expanding on these efforts and to to be going out there and finding new things. So in those laboratories, it's, it's the opposite. They're very much partnered with universities and looking into these environments. So uh, when Anne says it's a diverse mission set, I mean, it really just goes from everything to an open science lab working with a university to nuclear facilities that you don't ever want creativity. Talk about your role at the National Defense University. What's your mission um, in your role? And you're actually in the classroom, aren't you? You're teaching. That is correct. And I have to say it's an absolutely wonderful experience to be from an agency and then working back with Department of Defense, which, as you mentioned, you know, that was sort of my home where I grew up and came from was in the Department of Defense. And so being back at the Department of Defense, one of the things I feel like I contribute the most is an understanding that, you know, DOD is vast. And if you're in a Department of Defense component, maybe a few levels down, you might never really interact with the rest of the government. And so a lot of times in academia, they have this tendency to go, and the interagency will do this. And I'll be like, well, which parts of the interagency? And really trying to help them to understand what is the role of Treasury? And if you look at cyber events when they happen, like what is the role of Treasury when it comes to seizing funds? You know, what are the components within Treasury that do this? You know, how do you work with SEC? 
DC. Uh, just recently, uh, there was an indictment against uh, the uh, CISO for SolarWinds, right? And so, you know, I don't think people necessarily think, oh, cyber SEC, that goes hand in hand, right? And so really just helping the students to understand the authorities within the federal government and all the different roles is one of the major things that um, I'm helping them to understand better. And then uh, I have a couple students who are doing some amazing thesis work right now. And advising on a thesis, which is like a year-long journey, is really great because you can help them to dive very deep into things that they are passionate about. And so, you know, you kind of have the whole gauntlet. And one of the other great things we have, and a lot of people may not be aware of, is we have a distance learning program. And it's one of the oldest distance learning programs um, in the Department of Defense and the federal government. And this can really help because a lot of times... You know, as somebody who's a practitioner on my DOE side, it's hard. It's hard to send somebody away for like half a year or 10 mm -hmm. months to go to a school because that is just something where I'm like, I, I want to do that. I want my people to get the best possible education, but I need them there. Right. And so mm -hmm. to be able to say, hey, you know what you can do is you can have some time. You can take some distance learning classes and might take a bit longer, but you can do it over time. And I think that that's a really wonderful option. Um you know, for people to, to be able to explore that. And in addition, it really is great for people across different time zones. Uh, back at our annual conference, we were able to have uh, General Retired Alexander, who was, of course, the first Cybercom commander, and he was in Florida. And then we had one of our distance learning students and she's actually based out of Colorado, but she was in Vandenberg in California for the actual day of. And so they were able to come on and do their virtual presentations and to really include our distance learning students and to kind of show holistically all the different programs um, that we offer at the National Defense University and the College of Information and Cyberspace was really, really exciting. Yeah, technology well, Amy, who, is awesome. <laughs> who, who can, Amy, who can and can't be a student? How do you? How do, how do you get your students? Where do they come from? Can so that is a great question. Yeah, can I come? And <laughs> so, Caroline, the answer to that is sort of it depends, right? And so we have a very, very limited amount of industry students that we can take and accept. Uh, the preponderance, of course, is Department of Defense. And um, so Department of Defense uh, <clears throat> makes up you know, the majority of students uh, directly from the department, as well as, of course, um, allowing uh, Coast Guard students. Who So they're you know, not out of high school kids. No, no, no. This is a master's degree granting programs. Ah, okay. So, so, so um, when you say when you say Department of Defense, you're including DOA and and Coast Guard in as part of that. Uh, it includes Coast Guard, but not all of DHS. And then, for instance, in DOE. Uh, we get a limited number of slots where we can have attendees, as well as many other organizations across the federal government. So, Department of State and several of the of the other agencies. Um, have either agreements or situations like mine where they have faculty and then that allows them to send students. So it's a cybersecurity master's degree. That's, I mean, like. Because the Coast Guard, because we were talking with uh, one of our customers, a Coast Guard uh, customer yesterday, he said they have dual report. They report to yeah. DHS and they report to DOE. Because I guess they're on, a, I mean, DOD, because they're on the DOD network. Right, they're DHS DOD dual reporting, yeah. and because yeah. the way the Coast Guard authorities work, the Coast Guard can have attendees the same as as if they were internal to DOD. Well, how so, many students are we talking here? Okay, so <laughs> for the portion that I'm familiar with, which is the College of Information and Cyberspace, so just like uh -huh. um, if you think about um, 
any university that you attended, there's different colleges, you know? So like, you know, in a more traditional university, there'll oh, be like yeah. the business college and the arts college. And so I don't know the other colleges as well, you know, they're there, but like how the mm -hmm. internal workings of like the Eisenhower school or the national war college work, that's not my area of expertise. Right, so right, right. only speaking to the limited area, I know for the college of information and cyberspace, uh, for our, um, our 10 month degree, which is our master's degree, uh, program is 10 months. We have about 80 students in that program right now. Okay. And they come from several different agencies. And then, uh, the part I haven't mentioned yet is that we also have students who come from uh, different foreign countries as well. Oh, okay. Well, so this university, I, I didn't really know anything about it until now. So the Department of Energy at Nash, the National Defense University, like you said, it's got multiple schools. Like this is a big, is there a physical location? Yes, right at Fort McNair, you know, one of the oldest bases here in the Washington, D.C. area. It is absolutely scenic and beautiful right off the Potomac. It's uh, right in uh uh, right near the uh, the wharf and the new stadium. It is actually directly across Yard. from the new soccer stadium. Yep, down by Navy Yard. I've seen it. I've seen it. It is pretty. It's right at the point, right? A, right at the point. So if any of our listeners are interested, how do they um, apply? How do, how, you know, how do they learn more? So to learn more, if you uh, look at the National Defense University um, College of Information and Cyberspace, you could just use your favorite search engine and find it. And from there, it gives you information into our programs. And so we have the master's degree as well as six master's degree certificates, um, two of which are in resident for about four months each. And the other ones, which you are, are, the, are on the online programs, as well as you can uh, main, uh, obtain the master's degree online. Mm. And so just like any other university, we have requirements to get in. Of course, you have to have a bachelor's degree. It is accredited through um, middle states as our accreditation body. So uh, yeah, it's absolutely it, an amazing experience. And so within the Department of Defense, the preponderance of students are those sort of mid to senior career professionals who are expected from their services to be going on to do great things. And from the agencies, uh, we have a selection process and, you know, want to send our best and brightest and people who, you know, we want them to go out, get that education further and expand their knowledge, come back into the department and be able to apply it. And I, it's, it's very exciting for us. I got to imagine your department's getting bigger and bigger because it's so topical. There's such a focus on it in the federal government. The funding's got to be flowing in, Amy. I, I honestly, you know, I have nothing to do on the funding side. So, uh, <laughs> well, with the uh, shortage in the workforce, though, how can, sorry, that's a dumb, I almost said, how can we not be funding it? But government. <laughs> <laughs> uh, here's, here's what I will say. And, and I, I think that this is super important on this topic is the government cannot compete with industry when it comes to funding. Uh, I mean, you know, every single time I get people contacting me through LinkedIn and I have like a minute or two of like, oh, wow, like that's a lot of money, like way more money than I make right now. And I know our students, our graduates, our alums say the same things. And first of all, there is a certain point where I think there is value in people coming in and out of the government. And you can see sometimes people will leave, they'll go work at a financial institution, they will go work um, in industry and did that, you know, and left, you know, from EPA, she went and worked out in California, and then she came back into Department of Energy. So I think there's a huge amount of value of the more flexibility of recognizing industry experience in cybersecurity 
can be very, very useful. But I also think like, how do we attract people in the federal government when we don't have that kind of financial um, ability to reward? And I think it's reward by mission. Like I get up in the morning and I'm happy. I'm excited. I just think I have such an important mission to the American people. And then how do you convey that to people? How do you get them excited where they're coming in every day, not just because of the financial reward, but also because they know what they're doing has value. And when you can add that value and that meaning to someone's life, there's all these studies that show like there's a certain point, like you must have Maslow's hierarchy of needs met. If you are hungry, you are not going to be happy at work, right? Like that's like a fundamental, you know, you have to have those kinds of, you know, psychological safety needs met. But at that point, it's like, what gets you excited in the day? What makes you come into the day and say, I love this job and this is the job I want to be doing and I can't imagine doing anything else. And having that mission is super important. And that's what we can offer people. Everybody that I talk to, and I mean, uh, the hundreds of people over the years that work in the DOD, that's the first thing they say. It's the mission. And government. Yeah, yeah they do it for the mission. government in general. Yeah, yeah. And thank you so much for sharing that, Amy. It's it's important. And I feel I get a sense of that in industry because I work exclusively with our government um, business unit. And so I I get a taste of it and I know that I don't get it to the fullness that you do. Well, I think it's, you know, it's important that our industry partners, we're all partnered in this right now. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you look at our cybersecurity breaches that we've had, it takes that that comprehensive partnership. Um, I know that some of the controversial issues, uh, I mentioned SolarWinds earlier, you know, is how do we make sure that we're looking and saying, hey, you know, we do need you to start understanding software assistation and SBOMs. We don't necessarily want you to give away, you know, all the secret sauce and formula. We know everybody needs some proprietary data, but at the same time, you know, how are we making sure that we have a better understanding so that when a log4j event happens, that we're able, and, and back to the AI and automation, it's easy, it's automated. We understand where is all this embedded in our software? How do we correct, you know, very, very just swiftly get around to, to being able to apply those patches and things that we need to do? And we have to get better out of it because our adversaries are. Our adversaries are taking advantage of this every single day. And uh, one of the classes I just thought talked to my students was just the vast and overwhelming amount of intellectual property theft that has happened, mm-hmm. unprecedented. And um, recently, the five heads of, um, you know, of all the five eyes came together to talk about the intellectual property theft from China against the United States and how mm-hmm. it has been unprecedented and the largest shift of wealth of information ever in the history of mankind. And we have to recognize that, you know, if you're stealing industry secrets, you're stealing, you know, U.S. secrets, you're stealing secrets from our Australian partners, from our U.K. partners. And, you know, this is not acceptable. And we really have to help for that next generation as they're coming through to learn to do better. Because if you remember right, way back in the beginning, the Internet you know, ARPANET, DARPANET, it was designed to be open. It was designed to be research, collaboration, sharing. And it was, you know, just something people didn't think people could steal yeah, or would steal. Right. It, 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 I mean, it's scary and it makes you angry. It makes me angry anyway. I mean, when I hear uh, things like this, which is true, um, I don't know if enough people 
are aware in this country or care, you know? I mean, certainly people that work in the DOD and in these areas care, but I'm talking about general population type stuff. So, so it's really interesting. Uh, for one of my classes, I had my students watch some excerpts from uh, C-SPAN way back in 1989 from Cliff Stoll. And Cliff Stoll was the writer of The Cuckoo's Egg. It was all about at a Department of Energy laboratory at our Berkeley National Laboratory how espionage was taking place. They were coming into uh, the DOE network. And from the DOE network, they were, they were traversing out into the military networks. And he conveys that. And he talks about, like, you have to be angry. You have to be upset. And I can make sure you guys have a link to this uh, C-SPAN video because – to me, it's so powerful. And you see this in 1989, but it's just as relevant today. Um, and he's describing, he's like, I'm talking to NSA. So. And he's like, mm -hmm. and they're talking about, oh, they're <clears throat> penetrators. They're like talking about exfiltration. He's like, no, they're like stealing. And it's like wrong. And I'm like, and he's like, you can't just go in and look at cyber as like nine to five job. Like you have to have that passion about it. You have to go in mm -hmm. every day and say, I really, really care about this. And there's times that you're, not going to get sleep. There's times that you were going to be awake for days because that's the nature of these breaches. So at Billington, you were on a panel um, and it was all about automation for the workforce, like to increase productivity, to increase job satisfaction. And I'm wondering as an educator, first of all, so let me back up. As a basic employee and as a user, I kind of hate it when my company does automation because that means I have to go through training and I have a job to do. And that training is usually, I get myself in trouble. Mark's like, you're going to have to edit this out. You're going to have you, to take the training no matter what. <laughs> I know I am. And it's a waste of time. It doesn't train me to do anything. The automation that's supposedly coming in, I'm just like, this is just one more tool. That, I mean, so, okay, I'm going to stop my rant here and I'm going to ask you, how do you find a balance? Because innovation and the new tools coming in, I mean, they do make things faster. They do help amplify in, in certain cases. How do you find a balance between getting your students, getting your workforce um, trained up? Uh, to use the automation, I guess. So I think that there's two things. One is the automation behind the scenes, which is when I look at my cybersecurity workforce and you look at a security operations center, it takes forever just going through alerts and logs and it is a painful experience, right? So how do you I now take automation to make those jobs easier to ensure that there's a tolerance built in that I now have algorithms looking at that, this flagging the right things so that my workforce can be focused on other things, right? So that's a form of automation where they're going to be doing some behind the scenes grind, but it should make that job easier, less tedious, not more tedious, right? So that's part of it. But I think the part that you're describing and places do this so well when they market to you. And this is what IT departments and cyber departments should be doing internally is you shouldn't have to do training. There should be user experience. I have never had to be taught how to go shopping online. 
I wish I had to be taught because my credit card, yes. you know, my life would be yes, easier, Amy. right? No one has to teach me how to shop online. I can do this well on my own. And I go to the websites and they send back and go, look at this based on this, this is the 10,000 other things you need. And I'm like, yes, I never needed, knew I needed pink hedge clippers until the <laughs> gonculator said, you should get pink hedge clippers. So I was like, oh man, I love clipping my hedge. Now I'm like, look, it's pink, you know? And so- yeah, phenomenal, <laughs> crazy experience. But when you look at that, like pink, pink hedge clip, clippers, like how random, and you look at user experience, like it's very, very different when they're trying to sell you ads, when they're trying to sell you a product. I will say that uh, I have my own website I designed and uh, I won't give, I try not to use vendor names, but the vendor, like you just went in and they had incorporated AI already. Then I just put two or three keywords on of like, what products are you selling? What are you doing? You know, and I was helping out my sister, you know, as she's doing her website. So I was like painting acrylics, whatever. And bam, it just auto-populated. Hi, I sell blah, blah, blah in this way and do this and this. And I was like, this is fantastic. And I built this whole website yeah, I'm going to need that hours. name offline, Amy. I'm going to yeah, need we will that do that vendor. <laughs> but it was like phenomenal because back when I used to do website development and coding, it was like terrible. Painful. You know, and I was like, what does a WC3 say, you know, like, like in these requirements and how do I build out the HTML code and which color thing do I have to look up with all well, those? Well, and even when numbers. the templates <laughs> came along, like what, 10, 15 years yeah. ago, even those templates, man, I, I've used them and they're pain, they were painful. Mm -hmm. It was not a slick experience, but I love, we shouldn't have to do training, Mark. It should just make our jobs easier. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to caveat that with there's certain kinds of training we should do. And that's going to be like user awareness, especially when it comes to like cybersecurity, privacy, yes. um, active shooter, all the things where yes. it's like, if you are in a situation, like you need awareness training. Like you need to be able to good decision training, right? Mm -hmm. And but that's that is what a very the, different thing than using a tool training. Yeah, but we get new tools too. I feel like, you know, a new tool comes along and disrupts my life at least once or twice a year. And it's a major disruption and it's painful. I'm still trying to learn the latest tool that has been pushed on us. Like it's still not intuitive. Yeah. Like Amy, it should be like shopping. <laughs> Well, you know, it's it's interesting when you look at it, and, and I'll go to travel websites, right? I have no problem booking a trip online. I'm going to Disney World. Yay, right? Like, Disney makes it a fun experience to, to like, use Disney. And mm -hmm. um, then uh, what I want to say, too, is I, our NDU students had the opportunity to go down to Disney. And you want to talk about, like, land of automation and the ability to just see it a huge organization that's very, very different and diverse. And if you think about all the automation it takes for all the rides, all the fast passes, all the uh, right. reservations for like when you go to get your meals and your shows and everything and how amazing that is, right? I mean, just that alone is overwhelming. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's, I think it's just really important. Like we're all dependent on this technology now, but you don't have to learn to use Disney. It's not like you go to user training to figure out how to go to Disney World. Like you just go on the site, you figure it out. It's pretty simple. And so I think that we need to really realize that user experience is important. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, yeah. and, well, and well, make it easier. This is interesting because that, you know, uh, we were talking about the executive order that just came out about artificial intelligence. Well, about a year ago, an executive order came out on 
in user experience. It said do better. Kind of funny, uh, <laughs> you know, but but it was really vague. It didn't have a lot of meat to it, you know. Um, well, but we just had the recent one in September, M2322, that yeah, actually yeah. gives like 93 controls, basically. It's kind it's, is it in this document? Because it feels like an, like there's, there's like 90 plus um Pretty yeah. And we just talked about this yesterday and I've yeah. already, I can't remember. Um, I don't know. Um, well, and that's the thing on policy is, you know, first of all, I'm a policy person. I, you know, I was just saying, oh, you know, here's this policy, it, letting my students know like, hey, FISMA guidance come, comes out annually and that supersedes the previous guidance and blah, blah, blah. But I mean, having an idea of how all the guidance falls together, you know, like the, the statute comes out and then you have the executive orders, you know, the presidential decision directives, you know, and then you get down into OMB memos. And then you've got, you know, if you're a civilian agency, the BODs that are coming out of DHS. And then you've got the NIST guidance, you know, and somehow it all works. But, you know, it's like, how do you tie all these things together? And it's it's a real challenge, right? And, and so make you them want to digestible. Make, make them digestible. As, as a professor, Amy, I'm just, I'm going to ask you to do that for me. Can you please distill that AI guidance that just came out and tell me what it all means? <laughs> you know, honestly, I wish I could. I wish I could. Uh, but, uh. You know, it's 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 difficult, right? And it takes, you know, like you want to talk about it takes a bill a village, it takes a country. It is going to take all of us working together, industry and you know, government, you know, the partnerships. Uh one of the things I, I'm really grateful to is uh the different nonprofit organizations that are helping mm -hmm. to create the collaboration in these environments as well, I think is so important because, you know, we should have these standards bodies who are out there helping us to work together. You know, we should have these, you know, different forums where we can come together and discuss these important issues because it takes an entire nation approach. And one of the things I really appreciated is back in July when the um, education and workforce strategy came out from the White House, that they included a lot of industry partners and industry partners were like making financial commitments to like, we're mm -hmm. going to help rural areas so that these employees can get this, you know, they're going to help out with getting the information of K through 12. And whenever people are like, when should you start cybersecurity training? I'm like, as soon as you start handing them a phone. Mm hmm. Yeah, it should really just become common sense. And to be honest, like we do our cybersecurity training every year. It's so easy for me because it is just, to me, it's just common sense. Like I can just tear through those tests and I get 100% every time, Mark. Well, you've been in the industry too. Come on. I have. <laughs> yeah. I have. And that's why for me, it's just second nature. I'm like, well, this is just common sense. Yeah, you don't click on the link from the Arabian prince. No, he's not going to send you diamonds. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that that's important for like an understanding, but it's really important now uh, for kids, especially for social media. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, when you read about how the the rate of especially girls and suicide rate has increased so dramatically since they started using social media. And then, you know, how can you use these tools for education rather than predators having an ability to reach these children at such a young age? Uh, one of my friends super, super locked down his kids' phones. And one of the only things they could do is go to Khan Academy and they could use the uh, different tools within Khan Academy, you know, because very educational programs. 
And then he saw his daughter playing a game and he's like, how did you get access to this game? And she's like, oh, I built it. And he's like, oh, well, there you go. Way around the system. If you build there your you own game, you can use your own game, right? Nice. This is a topic for another uh, podcast <laughs> in, in general, because this that's a really important issue. You probably deal a lot with that, Amy, um, in the, in the, in, I guess, in the academia world. Well, not just academia world, but more like um, in my free time. And, uh, you know, one of the people I'm promoting right now is Kennedy Taylor, who's Miss Maryland. And she's phenomenal. And she is a duty contractor now. She used to be a contractor who worked for me, um, Ernest and Young, out of Department of Energy um, on my FISMA program. Just super brilliant, super cyber savvy. And as Miss Maryland, she is out there on a platform trying to get to you know, young children and get this message out and people to realize, like, you know, you want to talk about diversity and equity and inclusion and you look at her and you think about the stereotyping where when you see, you know, the beauty queen, right. But instead she's like the cyber beauty queen. Right. And you're mm. like that. I think the outreach message is just so tremendous there. Mm. Nice. Well, we got to get her on and time is beating us. So before we run out of complete time, since this episode, um, we're, we're coming up on, uh, New Year's resolutions. I want to jump to our tech talk questions. In other words, Mark. Actually, <laughs> before we do that, though, I should ask Amy: Is there anything that you want to leave us with before we go to our tech talk questions, which are kind of fun and maybe a little bit silly? So, there's one thing I really want to emphasize, which is my personal passionate projects that I work on all the time. Is that people hear me talk all the time about operational technology? Which, if you think about operational technology, I call it technology that has an impact in the physical world. So like we were talking a little bit earlier about, you know, electricity, right? That's an impact in the physical world. Tr Department of Transportation, when you look at, you know, metro trains and, you know, all the things that move and create some kind of effect in the physical world. And when you look at where we are in cybersecurity, I'm always like, you know, we talked a little bit about innovation. You should innovate when things are not working. And right now, in that sphere, it is not working anymore. There was a Canadian report that was released. It's really good. There's been some reports um, in the United States as well, specifically on the energy sector. And when I looked at the reports on the energy sector, I looked at the Canadian report that was very general. But the same thing is since the turn of this new decade, around 2020, the increase in the cybersecurity tax has been so great. It is four times the amount of the previous four decades. Like that is a mind blowing number. And we absolutely have to change how we are doing things because it's no longer working. So a lot of times there were old analog systems. A lot of times you could do you know, security through obfuscation. Like nobody was going to go and find out a, a manual from Johnson Controls or Siemens or somewhere, right? And now using the same technology, we're talking about, you know, the automation, the AI. It's super easy to start finding this information very quickly. And from this information, being able to break in more easily, the remote access, the smart devices. So you'll have an analog network with a smart device on it and suddenly the protection that we used to get in the traditional Purdue layers they're gone the, mm -hmm. the traditional Purdue model was fantastic I'm not saying that we completely get rid of it but what I am saying is we have to look at zero trust principles and we have to adjust our thinking because those models aren't working anymore and the more that we want these smart devices to the convenience so, you know how many people now have smart thermostats in their house you know and 
all those different smart technologies that you have, your refrigerator beaconing out, right? And this makes you super, super vulnerable, though, both at home and in the big industrial systems as well. So we have to do a better job there. Um, it's kind of a public service announcement, you know, but when people ask why, you have to realize is the why is because it's not working anymore. So as the, as the world becomes more dangerous and these incidents happen more frequently, it goes against human nature to be innovative during these times. So you yeah, want to risk, pull risk adverse, risk adverse. So we want to like shell you, up. Yeah. How do you promote innovation or get it, or, or, you know, get it to happen in an environment where it's going against your human nature? Well, I think that it goes against human nature, but the other thing about human nature is convenience, right? <laughs> we love yeah. convenience, right? Yeah. And so it's kind of like that balance of security versus convenience. And, you know, we we're talking about the average user. The average user is going for convenience. And the thing about traditional, you know, how we've done operational technology, I was at a conference recently that was internal within DOE. And when we had these discussions, manufacturers are now creating devices where the Wi-Fi is embedded at a chip level. So there's been devices we get, like we're, we're literally cutting out the wires and taking out the Wi-Fi component. But if it's embedded in a chip level, we can't even do that. So we have to work with the vendors and we have to relook at this kind of security because if it comes and there's no other options, that might not be the way to go. So it's how are we going to change this? Because the change is coming. That's great. I love if it's not if it's not broken, leave it alone. Right now, cybersecurity is broken. It's time to innovate. So, all right. Now we'll go to the tech talk questions. So with, with the beginning, like Jeopardy round. <laughs> Jeopardy round. With the beginning of the new year, do you um if you set new year's resolutions, <laughs> do you, would you want to share what what you might be setting as a new new year's resolution for 2024? So I don't necessarily set New Year's resolutions, but every year I like to pick one word, right? Of like, I want this year to be the year that represents this. And this is a word that I, I think is super important to me right now. But I'm really looking at this concept of sustainability. Mm. And, you know, how am I doing things in a way that's giving back to the planet, that's giving back to myself, that I'm looking at? I read an article about a woman who jumped out of a plane at 104. And I'm like, I am halfway there. I want to make it to that 104, right? Like, how do I make sure I have that longevity? And then, you know, when I look at the planet and what we're doing, like, am I making those smart, you know, resource choices in my personal life, you know, and then how can, how, I, how can I get back on that? So I'm really kind of looking at this concept of sustainability. And, you know, every year, I think it's kind of good because if you, if you have like a specific goal, like I'm going to lose 20 pounds, like eh, you might not be able to achieve that, but you know, it like doesn't matter. <laughs> you know, yeah. And then as soon as you, you slip, but I think if you kind of look at like, this is my word for the year and how do I move towards that? I, and I pick different words and this one. Amy, I'm using, it. I'm adding that word to my 2024. <laughs> I, it, I'm writing it on my board. Mark, you write it on your board too. <laughs> oh, you've been directed. You must sustain. <laughs> yeah. I, I love that. All right, Mark, you want to ask the next tech talk? Yes. So, so Amy, you know, you're, you're in academia. Um, you, you teach a lot of people. What advice would you give to professionals that are looking to grow their careers? I would just say network and don't be afraid. And I think that one of the things is a lot of times, like we have these fears that hold us back. 
And one of the things I've really seen is this, uh, you know, I'll have students who are sort of like shy or timid. They're not willing to like put themselves out there. And once you do, you just kind of see them blossom and grow. And so a lot of times we're, we're afraid, like maybe, you know, you're, you're outside your comfort zone. You're going to be made fun of. This is not really your skill set. Maybe you're not the best writer. Maybe you're not the best presenter. Uh, most of my classes, I have a, that accommodation of you must write a paper and you must present. And it seems like the people who write papers don't want to present or vice versa, right? And I and, just like we're doing right now, you know, you have to be able to talk and have like good interaction and get your main points across. But then also you have to do well on the papers and the written work, but also just the human interaction. Like, don't be afraid to talk to people. I mean, you know, me and Caroline at, at Billington, I mean, we wouldn't know if she hadn't just said, hey, um, how are you doing? Right. And so I think you've just got to combine that together is uh, like just that. overcome your fears. It's great yeah. advice. It is great advice. And you know what? When I first started podcasting, it terrified me. I it, it was so scary. And I still get scared, but to like come up and ask you to do this, you know, when I first that it used to be really hard. And now I'm like, no, I'm just gonna ask. I mean, the worst you can say is no. And then I can say, but are you sure? Because we want to talk about what you're passionate about. <laughs> so that is that is really great advice. Um, and with that, I don't want to make you late for your next appointment. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank Amy. you. And happy new year to you. Yeah. <laughs> happy new year. And thank you listeners for joining us on Tech Transforms. Smash that like button share this episode, and we'll talk to you next week on Tech Transforms. Thanks for joining Tech Transforms, sponsored by Dynatrace. For more Tech Transforms, follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram.